The Friend of My Youth by Bibi Berkey. We met when we were 18, two home counties girls cast loose in a northern university. We were both homesick for our school friends and to a lesser extent our families and found in each other more than simple consolation. We found a new home. Catherine was tall and athletic, her skin, hair and eyes warmed through with degrees of brown. She had been a committed netball player at school. I was shorter, paler, still thrilled by my achievements in sixth-form drama productions. Netball, drama. They were all left behind, the time-fillers of an impatient childhood, as we looked for something new and more satisfying. We were moderately diligent, her subject natural sciences, mine history, but were hardly convinced by any of it. Instead, we embarked on what can only be described as a full-blown, unashamed, middle-aged existence. And it was wonderful. Nothing we did was adventurous, and yet everything was an adventure. We loved to go out and eat, just the two of us, first in local cafes and restaurants, then to smarter places we'd got wind of in nearby towns. We clothes-shopped devotedly, already with a mature eye for quality. We consumed everything the local theatre served up for us, and we never missed a film premiere. We read together in our rooms and swapped the books on completion so that we could discuss them. We sewed and we knitted, and I'm sure that had we had access to a garden, we would have worked quite happily together in that too. In short, we were flagrant hobbyists, gourmands and hedonists, with little ambition other than to enjoy each other's uncomplicated company. Boys appeared periodically, and we enjoyed those too, but in a passing kind of way, as though we had just had the cheek to savour an expensive meal alone, and then felt compelled to rush back and confess to the other all about it. Catherine's boyfriends were as lithe as her, college sportsmen. Mine, usually obscure, self-obsessed types with interesting, malnourished faces. The day we graduated, Catherine and I, drunk and unapologetic, wept for the end of our blissful, rarefied lives. She already had a job offer from a laboratory as a very junior researcher in genetics. I faced the prospect of months at home, wondering what to do with myself. In the end, I ventured to London and the civil service. We almost got used to separation, immersing ourselves in our jobs and new relationships. Our twenties slipped by, and our thirties. Our intermittent reunions gave us brief glimpses into what we assumed were similar domestic experiences. I watched my dear friend, the companion of my formative days, grow and mature, a very warm-hearted single mother to a single daughter. She worked and she mothered, and we communicated still, about books mainly, about clothes, face creams, television programmes, that kind of easy thing. 
and then I rushed to her when her daughter was diagnosed with a condition that baffled and terrified us. I stayed with her for months, maintained her house while she was at the hospice, returned to my own home to check on things at the very moment when the girl slipped away. And I couldn't, I couldn't go back, because the sight of her desolate mother so scared me that I knew I could not be trusted to prop her up. I trembled at the idea of failing her. She wanted to be alone anyway, and Catherine didn't ask these things superfluously, didn't speak in niceties at all. She left my life precisely when I shouldn't have let her, and whatever soul-scarring agonies she endured, she endured them alone. My own daughter, also raised largely fatherless, moved abroad with her boyfriend shortly after her twentieth birthday, telling me, You want me to be happy, don't you, Mum? I did, of course. But her happiness came at the price of my own. I suspect that is always the way. I was fifty-seven. Catherine was fifty-seven. A long life had elapsed since our university days, and now we were both alone. If she was as maudlin about it as I was, I didn't know. Although we possessed each other's address, we hadn't met in years, not since our early forties. We had learnt to lean on others, I suppose, or not to lean at all. I worked. Presumably, so did she. Suddenly, I heard from her. She sent me a postcard, and I was very amused by the image, the mummified bog-body Lindo Man from the British Museum. She wrote on the back, This is how I feel, and how I look. Come and visit, please. She was living in East Anglia, in a somnolent little town that hugged its estuary like a child clinging to its blanket. Her home was a determinedly square 1950s council cottage. Outside, it was nothing to rave about. Inside, she had made what she could of it, given her limited means and its featureless nature. I stepped into Catherine's house on that cloud-hung March day and saw at once the play of her life in the years we'd been apart, recognised where she had gone shopping, what she had sewn and made, what pictures she had become attached to and why. There was a telly, of course, and a strawberry pink sofa, probably second-hand, but fresh and stainless and plumped up with cushions and blankets made by her own hands. I fell onto it and hugged a tapestried cushion, and she came and sat beside me and opened a photograph album. Look at this, she said. I forgot I even had this until the other day. And there we were, students again, ludicrous clothing now I thought about it, our hair in the broad and wispy fashion of the day. Our faces, that's what caught my breath. They were so blank with youth, so easy to read. Our eyes were wide and our mouths a little sad. I can't think why. Do you know, she smiled, I cried when that picture was taken, because I thought I looked so awful, so fat and ugly. What? I exclaimed. That's mad. How could we not have known how beautiful we were? It's the not knowing that makes you beautiful, I suppose, she replied, tracing her image with the tip of a finger. 
It's the time in our lives that we least know ourselves, and yet live at our fullest. I tried to recall it. I looked at the girls in the pictures and saw strangers, two pretty children who muddled through the turmoil of late adolescence by distracting each other with their unfettered excitement over new shoes and cinema trips. After an early supper, which was slight and bland, in deference to my recurring indigestion, we walked through the marshland on her side of the estuary, the preoccupied murmuring of birds an underscore to our conversation. I pointed out what I thought were curlews, but she corrected as godwits. The whole place, though flat, featureless and exposed, was percolating with life, winding down for the night, but doing so with one last frantic exclamation. To every side of us, wings unfurled for a final aerial circuit of the marsh beds. We talked of our ongoing dilapidation. The sorrow of Catherine's loss had marked itself on her face, which was falling downwards now, even the lines at her eyes seeking the earth. Her hair, which had always been fine, was finer still, and her body, though slim, stooped over itself, everything about her in hurried descent. And what did she see in me? A broad and sallow, late middle-aged woman, dyed auburn hair, scant brows, and the facial distortion that turns out one day to be jowls. We both dressed in a way that would bring as little attention to ourselves as possible. For two people who had once studied the vagaries of fashion with greater commitment than our own degree courses, we were very drab now, and inconspicuous. We bumped along the tussocky ground, our shoulders occasionally brushing, and as the world dimmed, our laughter was kindled, and we were at ease again. At the very centre of the marsh was a sluice-gate. We stepped onto it, the water running a few feet beneath us, and lingered, slightly elevated and in command of this busily roosting world. I glanced at Catherine's face and saw a kind of quiet elation. So funny that they drained this place for hundreds of years until it was dried out, and now they've thought better of it and are letting the water back in. It never liked it, you know. Refused to behave properly. Well, I suppose they had to farm it, I tried, just for the sake of argument. It would have flooded. So? It floods for a reason. It's a way of rejuvenating itself. I've been studying this water, looking at it very closely. It holds so many answers to our problems. Our problems? I asked her. She grasped my shoulder with one hand. Come and live with me here. I know you're lonely. Let's keep each other company. Go on, say you will. Those kinds of ideas flap about in a person's mind like a frantic bird, but then settle and eventually feel perfectly at home. And it wasn't until I'd returned to my flat in London, suddenly dreary after days of scattering waterfowl and broad horizons, that I began to entertain the notion that, yes, I could leave this place and thrive somewhere else, even a place as otherworldly and detached as that East Anglian fen. What convinced me in the end was that nobody really cared where I was or where I went, other than my old friend, 
and while I didn't want to make her solely responsible for my happiness, I felt at that time that I would clutch at anything steadying and familiar. I had been afflicted for quite some time by a sense that it was all loss from here on, degradation, quiet acceptance that there was no going back and little ahead. But Catherine, who God knows should have felt even more nihilistic than I did, seemed lighter of heart than I was. To be with her once again, as I had discovered as an eighteen-year-old, was to be home. I moved into the guest bedroom, and far from getting under each other's feet, we instantly coexisted harmoniously, our hermit lives simple and satisfying. There was a fenced-off square to one side of her house, which she claimed as her garden, and I worked with her on her beloved vegetable patch. Preferring edibles to blooms, she allowed me to grow flowers in a strip running down the right-hand side of the plot. I found this little ribbon of earth an inspiration, and we discussed the planting of it as we might a Chelsea show garden. There was something about that moist soil, perhaps the water returning to the drained flats, that seemed to hurry life along, bring plants to their prime in exuberant haste. I came to resent any time away from our garden. We both had to earn, Catherine driving daily to the pharmaceutical company outside Ipswich, where she worked in research and development, and me sleepwalking through a job as a part-time administrator for the county council. But the ration of work to pleasure came to mirror our student days. We could, we realised, once again lead the rewarding existence that we had so loved together when we were young. But we were not young. One Friday evening, Catherine arrived home, and before she'd even put down her bag or removed her coat, she came over to the sofa where I was stitching a canvas and looked down at me. What's up? I asked. Will you let me look after you? What do you mean? She unfurled a fist and revealed two small yellow oval pills. I've been working on dietary supplements. These are at a trial stage. They're perfectly safe. Will you join me? She looked so concerned that I laughed and snatched one of them from her palm. Sure, whatever. Look how much progress I've made with the furling nasturtiums. She slumped down beside me with happy relief and examined my needlework, and the evening ended, as every other, with supper, an hour and a half of television, and finally a stroll to the sluice gate across the marsh. I remember we ran home in the darkness. It was a spontaneous urge in both of us, and we set the Godwits into trembling flight at the unearthly confusion caused by our sudden vivacity. Yes, we ran. I looked at my legs. It was early, but I'd forgotten to close the curtains, and the sun was slanting into my bedroom. My legs appeared unfamiliar or rather distantly familiar, like I was looking at someone else's legs. Their skin was pale and plump, though the legs themselves were slim. There were no broken veins and no shelves of fat hanging either side of my knees. What hair there was was fine 
and barely discernible. I reached out a hand to stroke the skin, and it slid across silk. And then I looked at that hand. Its skin was smooth, and there were no brown spots on the back of it. The fingers were narrow, the cuticles clean and perfect, the nails short and strong and white at their neat tips. My heart was beating fast now, but I didn't dare move. I felt like I'd woken up beside a stranger, a stranger with, oh God, could it be true, a flat stomach? No, not flat, but concave. I tried to grab a layer of flesh, but couldn't get a grip of any. And that's what convinced me. I had to get up. I had to see myself. I put the usual effort into propelling myself into the upright and seemed to misjudge it and sprang out of the bed so rapidly that I stumbled forwards. I lifted my hands at once to support my breasts, found, to my amazement, that they were sitting very happily on my chest, without any need for reinforcement. There was a mirror on my wardrobe door. In three steps I could be in front of it. But I wavered, terrified, out of my mind, clearly out of my body. I had to do this. I took a step. A long and lean leg appeared in front of me. I smiled at it and shook my head. This was preposterous. To move suddenly felt so different, freer, as though I was hollow. I took another step and the other lithe leg presented itself. And then I was before the mirror. I fell on the ground and cried. It was such a beautiful face, the face of a child. There was nothing on it, not a mark, not a line. Instead, I saw unadulterated eye whites, thick brows, a neck. I saw an entire neck and only one chin. My hands scrambled all over my cheeks and forehead, clasped my head. My fingertips pressed their way in a journey around my eyes. I cried like it was the last of me pouring away. And when it had gone, I was exhilarated. There was a knock on my bedroom door. I got up, misjudged it again and fell forwards and wrapped myself in my dressing gown and went to answer it. Catherine stood on the other side, but not the Catherine I had casually wished goodnight to the night before. I opened the door onto the smiling face of the dearest friend of my youth. She looked back at me with round brown eyes, and I took in her long glassy hair and her square shoulders, no longer stooping, but a strong frame to a straight torso. We fell on each other, hugging, crying and laughing, and then instinctively we danced around the cottage. We had always danced as young women, comically, expansively, without the slightest self-consciousness. And now here we were, sturdy and energetic, desperate to keep moving, leaping around the living room, delighted with ourselves, our eyes streaming from laughter. Every other minute, I glanced at the tight skin on the backs of my hands and my arms, or peeked down my dressing gown to find compact breasts holding their own against gravity. At my centre was a lightness, an emptiness, a space that had yet to be filled. 
Let's go shopping, she cried. I skidded into my bedroom to get dressed. Nothing fitted, of course, but hung off me in an endearing clown costume. I wanted to stroke her cheek, the girl in the mirror, hold her to me like a lost daughter. We drove into town, where we visited the old-fashioned, family-owned department store, the kind of place that we'd found deliciously pompous as teenagers. I bought a skirt with a proper waistband, the first skirt I'd worn for years. It was longish blue chambray, youthful. I added a T-shirt of red and white stripes to go with it, and flat leather sandals. The T-shirt was boxy, cut to sit at the waist. When I reached up, the hem rose and exposed my navel. I ran a thumb over a hip bone that stuck out like a rock shelf on a smooth cliffside. What the hell? cried Catherine, giving in to a black jumpsuit. I've always wanted to wear one of these. She came out of the dressing room to show me, and my mouth hung open at the sight of those bare brown arms, the erect neck, the hair falling over the glistening eyes. I'm starving she said. We had three lavish courses each at the Italian place off the high street. The waiter took an excessive interest in us, which we found little more than amusing. Strange that any kind of reignited sexual interest was as vague as it had been in our youth. Men were merely part of the assault course, not the prize. And yet I quite enjoyed playing with him, glanced out of the sides of my eyes at him, let him think I was intrigued. I want to be looked at. I want to be wanted, I told Catherine, and she laid a long, elegant hand across mine and nodded. Can't you see? Everyone is looking at us. And she was right. I had sensed it ever since we had left the house, eyes drawn towards us, visible again, as though lights had gone on over our heads. We went home, without the waiter, changed and worked in the garden achieving a startling amount of heavy labour. We bathed and got back into our new clothes and then fell onto the sofa to plan our evening. I didn't even ask her, didn't dare, about what was happening to us. She didn't question it and I took my lead from her. With every moment our past merged a little further with our present. Moments long forgotten returned a way of life that predated all our later tragedies emerged as a shining possibility once more. Catherine and I, fresh, made up, perfumed, set out on our evening adventure. We filled up the car at the local garage, and as she got back in, I picked up the atlas and asked, where to? She slapped it down. Like the old days, she said. Let's just drive around. It was dusk, and the road curled into the distance, its end fading into the dusty nothingness of minor places. I felt small, like a beetle peering through the grass, dependent on the goodwill of a giant world. We travelled on, beyond the county boundary, into the heart of the countryside. I think we may have gone north, perhaps east, certainly away from the sun. The music played on the car stereo, and we sang, remembering, remarkably, a good many lyrics that we didn't even know we'd ever heard. 
We took the roads that seemed the emptiest and least likely to be attached to anything of significance. As the darkness solidified, so did a sense that we had only begun our journey. That's youth, isn't it? To feel defiant about the night. We had no yearning for our beds, nor for the day. We stopped at last at a large roadside cafe where there seemed to be some kind of event going on. The lighted windows were stark against the dark, bored walls. We entered to find a country and western night in noisy progress, locals done out in rhinestone denim and Cuban-heeled boots. I felt like we were foreigners, stumbling on some secret ritual. I was particularly fascinated by all the late middle-aged women, hair all impossible shades, bare arms trembling as they stomped through their line dance routines. Several pairs of eyes glanced our way. A sinewy man of about 60, all in black and with a boot-lace tie, swaggered up to us and held out his arms. Katie, he proclaimed, my little beauty, you're back. He pulled Catherine onto the dance floor and swung her around it. I thought how bizarre they looked, the ageing East Anglian cowboy with the bemused child in his arms. As I watched, I backed into a table and found myself looking down at a very large woman in a very small, strappy top, her vast, marbled arms lying like skinned carcasses on the table before her. Sit down, she told me, and instantly I did. She placed a small pillow of gum in her mouth and squashed it flat between her back molars. I used to think she came here to make fun of us, to make us envy her. And don't you? I asked her, keen to know. Why should I envy you? She grinned, and I spotted the gum trapped between front teeth this time. Because we're young and you're not, I insisted. She laughed at that. What? That's your great achievement, is it? Being young? Congratulations. I've already done all that. I couldn't answer, because I was already feeling the chill of my inadequacy. I'd forgotten all about that sensation. You know why I don't envy the young? She asked me. I shook my head, as they spend their entire youth looking for somewhere to belong. And guess what? I was still mute. You don't belong here. I got up and crossed the dance floor, pulling the ill-matched sacheting couple apart. I can't, Kath. I can't, I cried. This isn't right for either of us. They can see through us. Everyone can. She seemed furious then and stalked across the floor and out of the front door. I followed, apologising as I went, so uncomfortable now to find all those eyes on me. As I passed the large woman, still at our table, she held out an arm, the flesh swinging hypnotically beneath it. That's right, she grinned, the stretched gum hanging over her bottom lip. Keep looking. You haven't earned it yet. I pushed past her and emerged into the night to find Catherine sitting in the car, her eyes trained forward. She started the engine as I got in. About five minutes into my journey, I heard her murmur, I'm sorry. At the cottage, she got out and instead of going indoors, headed straight for the centre of the marsh. I followed behind, unable to find the words to break into her self-absorption.
the Godwits greeted her with a familiar, drowsy rumble, and I pictured her striding out into the wilderness like this, night after night, strong and full of energy, a young woman again, so excited, but belonging nowhere. I was getting out of breath, finding it increasingly difficult to keep up with her. A slip of a young moon, dithering behind hectoring clouds, only faintly delineated her outline as she strode on, speechless. I was cold now, and as I wrapped my arms around myself, I felt the soft bulk of my distended stomach. I undid the button on my waistband, and then, instinctively, lifted my arm to provide a comfortable shelf for my painfully unsupported breasts. My thighs were rubbing together, and my knees screamed each time I thudded into an unseen rut in the ground. I was crying, profusely, tottering after a young woman that I barely recognised now. We were feet away from the sluice gate, where we would normally stand and survey the sunset and listen to the roosting marsh birds. She stopped and turned. My friend was crying, but she was laughing too, and held out her arms. I ran into them and knew that this was a parting. I got addicted to it, she said. I can't go back now. I can't either, I cried. Not without you. I just wanted to feel what it was like to play again, she said, and a glorious smile broke through the grief. It seemed entirely out of place in that unlined face because it carried so much foresight in it and you can never find that degree of understanding in a young girl. You were the friend of my youth, she told me, and I thank you for that. And she turned. In the few seconds it took for me to ponder over what she had said, she disappeared, simply walked into the night. I roused myself and stepped up onto the sluice gate, but even from that slight vantage point, I couldn't see a single human form on that flat expanse. She'd gone, and the only place she could have gone was into the water that ran beneath my feet. I peered down into it, and what moonlight there was revealed a steadily moving flow, undisturbed, set on its relentless course. I gave up searching for her after about an hour, and went back to the cottage, where I slept briefly, and woke stiff and uncomfortable to a faint dawn. I reached down to feel the pulp of my stomach, and then up to pinch the flesh beneath my chin. It was Sunday and warm, and I remembered that her spinach needed watering and the onions pulling. The dahlias had to be staked before their heads became too heavy for their stalks. I found my usual roomy trousers and Kath's jumper, and got to work, and spent the entire day outside, labouring, waiting, stopping now and again to catch the soft toy squeaks of the massing godwits. I worked into the dusk, one eye on the fuzzy horizon, trying to discern a human silhouette. And I still dig her garden, and wait for her in her cottage, weeding the beds, fetching water from the river, and marvelling at how potent it is, how her crops beg for it and thrive on it, and how they seem to refuse to wither and die.
The Friend of My Youth, written by Bibi Berkey, read by Georgina Sutton, studio production Mark Lingwood, and it was brought to you by Tempest Productions. And now a word from our sponsor, which is us, Tempest Productions. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it and you'd like to help us make more, then why not buy us a coffee via Kofi? That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tempest Productions. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tempest Productions. Thank you so much for your support.